You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, September 13th, 2017, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. So, Bob, are you going to rush out and get the iPhone 10? No, I'm going to wait. I'm going to hear some reviews, um, but I think I may have to get it. It, it looks it looks pretty awesome. Um, I like how it's uh, a, a big leap over, a big change over over the uh, the 7. Um, the 8 is you know kind of an incremental update, apparently, but the 10 is big. Much bigger, much bolder. So, uh, so we'll see. I mean, it's expensive as hell. I mean, a thousand bucks sounds crazy. When did the eight come out? It's coming out with the with the ten. Uh, I'm gonna I'm wait. Say, I'm gonna wait for the nine. I'm gonna get the iPhone nine. There is no nine. <laughs> <laughs> what? How could there not be a nine? Wait, how much? Well, okay, I have an iPhone six S. What? 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 Which one do you guys have? I have six. I, ha- I have the Google Pixel. I oh, so have, you have a the Google uh, phone. Yeah, HTC. Yeah. Uh, I have a six. Yeah. That's a true. Google. Evan and Steve's texts are always green, but Bob and Jay's texts are always blue because you guys are iPhone people. This interesting. This latest release of of Apple and the iPhone, like it's made me take a, a real hard second look at the phone and do I w- want to continue being an Apple iPhone? Well, what's user? the difference in price? Honestly, how much did we pay for our sixes or our six X's? They were like what seven hundred dollars, right? I bought, my, I bought my HTC about a month ago. I had to replace my phone. This was six hundred dollars. This phone. Yeah, I guess that is a significant. T- I guess I don't notice how much I pay for my phone because I do that thing where I pay a little bit each month in order. It's sort of like a rent to own situation where after That's like right. a year or two, I can always upgrade. So I'm just constantly in debt on my phone. So the Google Pixel XL, the hundred and twenty eight gig. Uh, version right now, I'm seeing it for like you know six fifty seven hundred dollars. So, mm-hmm. and that phone definitely has a lot of features that the iPhone has. Now, not everything like the facial yeah, recognition it had the first. thing. Yeah, I mean, there's things that the the new iPhone has that that looks pretty cool. But I mean, a lot of the stuff that it, it's coming out with now, other phones have already had. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it, it is yeah. What but it Jay, is. what I read is that. Part of the point of the the uh, the iPhone 10 is not just like oh let's play catch up and uh, and and have what everyone else everyone else has had for a few years now. It's not just that they from what I read apparently they they took their time and sure they added some things that other people other phones already have, but they're also adding other things that were just like nobody has things that supposedly what they're claiming is that this is going to be set the path for smartphones for the you know for the next handful of years now so, let's uh, face it the, the point of the iphone 10 is to make us spend a thousand dollars on an incremental improvement on a device that's still fundamentally the same it has a headphone well, jack i hear <laughs> I, I don't I, I don't think you can call it incremental the eight is clearly incremental the it's 10 supposedly incremental. Supposedly, is I would I don't think incremental is fair, and this is from what you know what I've read, which is you know, and it's kind of limited what they've released about it and what it could do. But I think the whole the idea is to is to do something that is much more than than is to convince people that's what they're doing. No, yeah. this I get. They're trying to, they're trying to add <laughs> significant functionality, but the bottom line is it's still a smartphone. You know, the iPhone, the first smartphone, that was a change in the way we used phones. And nothing since then has been a fundamental change like the like the first smartphone itself was. Everything since then has been incremental, which is fine. I'm not really – Yeah, but you know, when you have an increment that. like 3G going to 4G, that's a big increment. 
it's on. still an increment. That, it's still but incremental, meaning it's not a fundamental change in, in the device. It's just but better. no, but it changed the usage dramatically. It, you what know, about when you, Face ID though? That's like crazy. Like I know it already had biometrics. It already had the thumbprint ID. Yep. But the fact that it can recognize your face in any light level, whether you're wearing glasses or not, like that's wow. a security feature that's really futuristic. Like to me, that's the one thing about this that's not an incremental change. Yeah, it's a big yeah. way. Uh, Apple did a great job of doing it. And I think it's like a one in a million uh, security, which is very yeah. good because the thumbprint was only like one in 50,000, I think. Very good, yes. But, but even still, it's not like we're all having these horrible problems with typing in our codes. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like it's a real perk. You know, I don't know. Really, yeah, right, that's, that's true. true. I mean, that's I really, true. I love it the advanced It solves kind of a problem that doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, but look, it, you know, it might be a problem down the road or whatever. It is still great. It's fantastic because it's easy. You just look at your well, phone and it does it very fast. But is it worth hundreds of dollars to really just walk away maybe with that one feature when there's so many other phones out there? I don't know. I mean, I like how easy iPhones are to use, but I learned how to use – I had a, a, um, a Samsung phone, and I learned how to use it, and I liked it. I actually went back to – and here is a big perk for me. I went back to the iPhone because my wife and I love FaceTime. It integrates mm-hmm. very neatly with the, a phone call. I can I can switch to a FaceTime phone call and get video with it, and it's great. Now, I know there's other services out there, but it, this one is just very easy to use. It's streamlined, and I'm waiting for another app to come out. Maybe 10 people will email me and tell me, you know, I, I use Skype, but it's not as easy as, as FaceTime. So that, to me, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an older technology, but it's great. It checks out. <laughs> You I like that the, convenience. The one thing I'll say is that, and again, this is not about comparing it to other phones because it's true. Like other companies like Samsung have been able to – granted, the iPhone has never caught on fire in anyone's pocket. I don't think. Um, but Samsung um, and other companies have been able to do some of the – like wireless charging. That's very cool. But other people have been doing it for longer. Like right. the moving from an LED to an OLED screen. Is that what it's called? OLED? Yeah. OLED. Yeah. Um, yeah, organic. Yeah. Organic. And like some of those things. But when we actually do take a minute and step away and we think about what all we're getting, I know it's $1,000. I know that's steep. But I think the reason to have such intense security and the reason why Face ID matters so much for certain people, even though it's an incremental step above uh, a thumbprint ID, is that people's lives exist in these things. More and more, it, it gets to the point where it could be detrimental if you lost it and somebody else oh, would yeah. go into it because you're banking through it. It's connected to... And the connectivity to other devices is why I'll probably always use native iPhone devices or um, Apple devices because when I get a text on my phone, it's also on my laptop and it's also on my iPad. When I open a file, I can find it anywhere. Yeah, and it's your me, primary uh, yeah. uh, yep. uh, intake of data and information and it disseminates it easily to, to everything all your other devices. and I, I also use apple tv at home and so all of the oh, that network of things and and also we we use like the airport which is that's our um i don't know if it's our modem or our router i always get those two confused but it is um it's how we have internet throughout the house and so yeah. in order to have all of those things that would be basically have my life yeah okay my yeah, router of course. which secured behind such an in, in incredible like neural net technology i do think is important that said obviously i understand when my friends are like android users because they're like you're dumb for using iphone like android has way better technology <laughs> I, I know yeah and i don't want to come across as a total 
Apple fanboy because I mean I have had an Apple phone for years and I do love it. But I talk to friends and with you know with their Androids and they're like, look look what my phone can do. And I'm like, well shit, why can't the iPhone do that? I know. I mean, like, well, like, that sounds like a, that's a no brainer. Why hasn't iPhone adopted that years ago? What the hell? This you is know, what I don't like. Off. This is what I don't like about Apple. So the, what you got, what you guys are saying that you like about it is the fact that it's proprietary. Is that it works well with other Apple devices, but yeah. doesn't play well with non-Apple devices. Right. But I hate that's what that. people hate about yeah. it. That's <laughs> what I hate about it. And, you know, I'd rather you know, if you could sell me a better product, fine. Don't make the fact that it's better the fact that oh, but, you know, you ha- everyone has to have everything Apple in order for it to the work ecosystem. seamlessly. That's right. I think that the software applications should be you know neutral to the hardware. Hardware, you know, what I mean, you shouldn't have to have a particular you know piece of hardware in order to use a particular piece of software. I should be able to FaceTime anybody I want. I don't care what yep. phone they chose to buy. I, I really resent the fact that Apple keeps it proprietary. Yeah, And in terms of the source. security thing, Carrie, you know what the best mm-hmm. security is for your iPhone? What? Don't freaking lose it. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> yeah. and done. I've Do never not lose one. it. That, but Steve, but I don't know how people lose their phones. I left mine in my a phone cab once. It is in my hand or on my person. It's, I never put it down. Why would you ever put your phone down? Steve, and I got to tell you, man, I think you're high, okay? Because you're saying <laughs> that people don't misplace their phones. I misplaced my phone going to the bathroom in my own house. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It happens twice a week. I put it down. I don't know where I put it down. My phone is Why black. Why do you put it down? Why do because you put it I don't down? have a I don't have a stupid holster like you. I I don't. There's your problem. <laughs> Steve's got this big leather honking thing hanging off. Yeah, it's the price we pay for being it's cool. And I'm, I'm, I can deal with that. Um, I've also dropped my my iPhone in the toilet three. <laughs> count them three. Did. Not oh, this model, no. but my last model. I actually kept a bag of first rice. It doesn't and work. Then Desiccant? No, it totally works. No, rice, then, no, rice does not act Tara, as a desiccant. Do not put rice in your phone if you drop it in the call in the toilet. It does not help. It only hurts. All you're doing is getting fine rice powder in your phone. Seriously, we we did a segment on this. We did a deep dive on it. It's not effective. Do not. Oh, good to know. Okay, but nice in, to put rice in your phone. You just dry it out. Just dry it out. The thing is, if it's not salt water. Like if you hadn't peed, you know, if it's just the water, probably okay. You might be okay. Yeah. It, yeah, it's and might is that, the operative that, word there. Yeah, and that's a good segue to uh, I mean to to the new iPhone. That um, th- oh, you can this drop is it the in bottom the line. It this has a fecal. The, well, it's water resistant. It's, wa- it's water resistant. So f- finally, it's water resistant. But, but again, other phones have already been doing that, that for months. Exactly. It, and that's the bottom line. Let me tell you the bottom line I, as I see it for Apple is that mm-hmm. fi- you know finally they're you know, they've got they're getting a lot of features that other phones have had. So that's good finally about time. But also they've got all these other new features supposedly that 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 are going to be like a a seat, you know a change in in the cell phone and kind of point the market where it's going to go for the for the next years. But the thing is the cell market the smartphone market is maturing. And Apple has crazy competition. In fact, yeah. just just a few months ago, they were finally eclipsed in cell phone sales by some other company. So th- to me, this is a, an, a critical juncture in Apple's history because this is like seventy five percent of their of their revenue is from is from the iPhone. It's from the this iPhone, really? Yeah, it's Not, huge. I guess two the thirds, iPod is obsolete now. Huh? Oh my god, yeah. Two thirds or two thirds or seventy five percent of their sales is from the iPhone. They if they don't do it with this uh, iPhone ten or 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 iPhone eight. They are in trouble, I think, and they're, they're going to be increasingly marginalized because other companies are bringing it. The early indications are that it will be a success, and the, the markets are certainly betting on it because the Apple stock continues to go up. 
All right, but I think the one thing we can all agree on is that if you don't use a holster to hold your phone, you're a loser. <laughs> That's clear. Oh, my God. <laughs> the science is it, settled. It means you favor fashion over practicality, and you deserve to lose your phone. <laughs> and Steve, drop it in the Steve, toilet. how about yeah. this? Maybe the yeah. compromise will be that you and I would wear Pip-Boys. I would do that. I would totally wear a Pip-Boy. <laughs> I would, too. If it was awesome, I would wear it. Yeah, but that, that is an interesting idea, the wearable smartphones that are practical. You know, you don't like a watch. But they haven't they haven't matured yet, you know. Yeah, the, that I'm not ready to wear a watch instead of carrying a cell phone. The tech the but, tech isn't there yet. I'm gonna tie mine in my wear, Google. Glass, I will but, wear my augmented mm-hmm. reality glasses. Me too, Bob. Yeah, that, that's with right. My cell phone. Exactly. That's right, brother. The day is coming. That's right. Yes, we're just around the corner, like Google Glass. That's right. No, I mean, it's, it is it is here almost, guys. I mean, we're yeah, we but are, you still will take your glasses off. But something you like a watch that you wear and don't take off, except when you're going to bed at nighttime, or you're showering. That's you're not going to lose that. That would definitely that would be a, a big change. I think. I predict ten years from now, with the iPhone twenty, you'll be able to have it surgically implanted into your body. Mm-hmm. Therefore, yeah, that'd be cool if it was in your forearm. It. But uh, yeah, my friend uses an Apple Watch every day, and it really works for her. But I do find that it's annoying hanging out with her because she's constantly looking at her wrist. You know, because yeah. it just goes oh. off all the time. And granted, people do that with their phones, which is just as annoying. But mm-hmm. I'm especially attuned to it because I'm like, ah, stop looking at your watch. It's <laughs> <Yeah>. so rude. <laughs> That's you just have to live with that. People looking yeah. at their 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 personal electronic device, whatever it mm-hmm. is, you know. Yeah, you're right, Steve. Except when they're driving. Hello, people, please stop doing it. But I'm yeah, watching but you. but we're gonna have self driving cars, so who cares? All right, Kara, it's time for what's the word? It is time for what's the word, and this week the word is. That's my drum roll. <laughs> Occult. I actually planned this during Dragon Con. I was inspired by all of the costumes. There, mm-hmm. are, there are quite a few witches at Dragon Con. Yeah, um, witches. And warlocks. Why not? And actually, it was recommended online um, by Twitter user Bob Columb. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He said he used the word a lot when he was working at NASA. But why would you use the word occult when you're working at NASA? Well, because mm-hmm. it has a lot of definitions. So, of course, when we look at the word as a noun, the occult, we think of supernatural powers or practices and the things that are connected with them, gods, ghosts, magic, all of that good stuff. But did you know that it also has a meaning in geology, medicine, and astronomy? I did not know that. Some of those, yes. Steve no. knew a little. Bob knew a little. Well, let's go through them. Maybe we'll start with medicine because um, that's one Steve would know about. Oh, yeah. How do you use the word occult? So it's something that's present but not clinically evident. Um, so like if you have occult blood in your stool, that means you can't see it, but it's there. You can test for it. Or we talk about people having occult diabetes. They have diabetes by the blood tests, but they don't have any clinical symptoms of diabetes. So it's hidden. it's hidden. Yeah, it's hidden. Yeah. It's hidden, yeah. but it's still detectable through tests. And yeah. even I love how I can't remember which dictionary I pulled this one from, but it said it may come to light only after testing or palpitation. <laughs> Ooh, you can palpate for it. I love it. Um, all right. And then, of course, um, Bob, you mentioned that you have heard of it as a verb when we talk about um, astronomy. Right to occult yeah, like, something. Uh, yeah, occult, occultation. You know, when mm-hmm. something is passing between uh, you know, one thing and another, so it's blocking it, like like the moon in front of the sun. Yeah, 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 like an yeah. eclipse. There you go to shut off from viewer exposure or to eclipse. That's actually in the definition. And 
actually, there's another definition in geology, an occult material. So again, it's an adjective like it is in medicine, like occult blood. An occult mineral can be shown via chemical analysis to be present in rock, but similar to the word occult in medicine, it's usually not found under the micro microscope. So it's actually kind of more hidden than even in medicine. In medicine, maybe you don't see the blood in stool by looking, but if you put it under the microscope or if you use certain types of tests, you'll see it. Whereas in geology, you won't see it under the microscope, but if you do special kinds of tests, you might be able to find it, um, like chemical analyses. So again, it's this hidden aspect. Um, and of course, physics too, right? Astronomy, hidden, shut off from view, shut off from exposure. So, but how does that have to do with the noun form? Well, they actually do come from the same um, etymological roots. So occult as a word was first, um, first came into being in the 1530s. And it's uh, from the Middle French occulta, which actually came from the Latin occultus, which actually means hidden, concealed, secret, not divulged. So that actually came from the past participle of oculiere, which means to cover or to conceal. And so if you really dig back and you think about it, even though it didn't become associated with supernatural things until the 1630s, so there's like a 100 years in between there, it makes sense that that would be a word that is used for something that is secret and concealed and hidden. I love it. Steve, remember that uh – when dad went to uh, that uh, psychic. psychic like uh, uh -oh. four decades ago and and uh, he said when going through the kids, me being one of them, he was like – he mentioned something about me being interested in the occult. Yeah, I remember that. Which is kind of funny. I mean no, not, not – not, well, what kind of occult is he talking about? <laughs> yeah. Geographic? Was it astronomical? But uh, he was yeah, clearly referring to what we think of as you know supernatural kind of evil – demony type of witchcraft cult stuff but it's funny because if you kind of looked at some of the things that i collect you would say oh bob's into the occult when, totally. but i'm not i mean i don't believe in that crap but i do like macabre things mm -hmm. for sure yeah but if he was having a, a vision bob and he was looking at your your room i could yeah. see why he would say that <laughs> yeah i would too but clear you know clearly he was also you know full of shit <laughs> All right, Jay, you're going to start off the news items with the discussion of this Equifax data oh, breach. What the I, hell? Oh, no. Equifax. We're doomed. It's oh, terrible. Yeah, th this is a, uh, a consumer alert. Last week, uh, Equifax revealed that they had a data breach. Just as a quick explanation, Equifax is important. It is important that you pay attention to this. And let me tell you as many details as I could find. First, what is Equifax? It's a consumer credit reporting agency. Or another way to put it, it's a company that makes its money by collecting your individual consumer personal information, and then they sell that information to other companies. And that data is typically used to determine things like your eligibility for services, like an insurance, medical care, housing, banking services, Mortgage. utilities. Yeah, your mortgage. Even your employers could do it. You know, a future employer might be running a credit check on you. Equifax is one of several companies that does this. So you may have heard of the other two big ones in the United States, Experian and TransUnion. Um, these three, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion, are considered to be the holy trifecta of the credit industry, right? The, mm -hmm. These are the companies yeah. that do this, that collect the data. So, so the data breach that happened at Equifax or Equifax, this was reported to the public last week. This actually started back in mid-May is what they were determining that, that um, 
the hacking took place and, and it lasted for quite a while. It lasted for over a month. The breach was to was due to likely due to an Apache Struts vulnerability. I'll get into a little details here. Apache Struts is a free open source code base that companies use to write Java web applications, or in simpler terms, it's free software that many companies use. Free software is great because it's free. But free software is not maintained, um, not like you know, a piece of software would be from a company that is financially gaining from that software. It could be maintained by a community in a way, but really the company gets the, this free software and it comes with all of its flaws and the company really has to take on the flaws of that code base. Now these flaws in this case were exploited by bad guys that want to do bad things with our data. So they they stole our most private and sensitive information. In fact, 143 million people had their data stolen. This is exactly what happened to Equifax. I want to make sure everyone knows that this data breach is deadly serious because pretty much everyone who has credit information, right? If you've ever purchased anything on a credit card, if you have a mortgage, if you, you know, if you've made a simple transaction online, Equifax has stored your data along with the other agencies, and that data has just been stolen. Many companies use free software like this, and it's actually not always a bad thing. This is a a disclaimer here, because these companies do have access to the code base, and then they can go in and, you know, down to the core of the code and fix things and enhance things and do what they want. But what software and security professionals are saying is that Equifax should have gone above and beyond the normal security measures because of the seriousness of the data that they handle, Yes, right? So they may have been doing an okay job for an average software company, but they weren't doing a good enough, obviously, they weren't doing a good enough job for the most important information digitally that exists for all of us. So now the following information I took from the the Federal Trade Commission or the FTC's website. So I'm going to read a paragraph here I, I plucked right off the site, and here it is. Here are the facts, according to Equifax. The breach lasted from mid-May through July 2017. The hackers accessed people's names, social security numbers, birth dates, addresses, and in some instances, driver's license numbers. They also stole credit card numbers for about 209,000 people and dispute documents disputed documents and personal identifying information for about 182,000 people. And they grabbed personal information of people in the UK and Canada too. Welcome to the... my friends. So that was my bit at the end. Um, (laughs) That means that if you live in the United States and some poor folks in the UK and some people in Canada uh, and you do anything on the grid, like I said before, your data was 100% stolen. They got it all. This means that the people who now have your data can sell your identity to the highest bidders that are out there. And that's that might be under – that's a pretty bad scenario, but the worst scenario could actually be that a, a, a you know an enemy state – I don't want to name any countries out there, but there are countries that are opposed to the United States. They might want that data for security person, per, uh, per, personnel, like national security personnel, which could even be worse – in the long term, and you know, I know it's easy to say, "Well, what about me?" But when you think about national security, that breach could be really bad. And when someone can pretend that they can, they could be someone that works for their, a government, or someone can pretend, reduce it down, that someone can pretend to be you. They can do stuff like get a credit card in your name. They can take out loans. They can, you know, they can get your driver's license. I actually had get someone your tax c- refunds. I know. I'm going there, Bob. Right. I got. I did it all because this is. Real. I'm trying to cover everything. So somebody actually stole my, the, or you know, stole my identity and had my driver's license in Illinois, and they got me. 
They're, and they're driving around with me, you know, not my picture, but everything else was me on that driver's license, you know, and it, that was crazy. That, that, that really freaked me out. That was the first time I was ever hacked and it wasn't the last time. So the FTC goes on to give advice and all that. I've kind of reduced this advice I'm going to give you by, I, I've done an enormous amount of research. I've talked to security professionals and I think I have a really good nugget of advice here. And I, I'm going to give you a, a, a quick disclaimer. It's spoiled with me being pissed off. I'm sorry. But this everything <laughs> I'm going to say here, I'm really angry about this. Equifax is giving any U.S. consumer who wants a, a free year of credit monitoring, you can get it. The credit monitoring is a good start, but I'm not sure I want to trust Equifax with any of my personal data ever again. So I might not even take their free year. Right. Not that you have a choice, but I'm not going to go you know, engage with them for a year of free service and then have them try to charge me starting next year. It's a $17 billion company, by the way. Yep. You know, data is big business. So this company is silly with money. So Equifax is letting people search on their site to find out if your data was breached. Don't waste your time. You were breached. They're considering this to be a 100% breach. Now, everyone, everyone that I know that I asked that checked on the website was breached. One of the best things you could do, though, is put a, cr- a credit freeze on your files. Yes, yeah. Now, this credit freeze sucks though and let me explain to you why because doing this will make any new activity on your account like applying for a simple credit card very hard to do even for you the person that's protecting your own data because you're going to actually have to unlock an account to let another company peer into your credit to approve credit that they want to extend to you so there's different ways that this happens but typically you get a pin number that you could go on and in three days you can unlock one of your your credit accounts with one of these companies so you You'd have to ask the credit card which one of the companies are you using, one, two, or three of them, or even more. Then you have to go and unlock the data from those companies, let them dip in. Then you, then you have to go and lock it again. Guys, it sucks, but that happens to be one of the best things that you can do. You, another thing you should be doing at all times right now, especially, is go and check your credit reports. Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. You can get them once a year for free. You can go to annualcreditreport.com and get your free reports once a year. I do it. I, you also, I think you should pay for a, a, just a, a continuous monitoring account that doesn't hit your credit report, meaning that it doesn't take points away from your report to check it. It's just a, a service that you pay for that lets you see everything that's going on whenever you want. You can use um, Credit Karma too. That's what I use. It's free. You don't even have a credit card on file and you can check your credit uh, score anytime. It only is two of the three major ones, but you can check it. It's a good service. And yeah. you know, it is good to check all three, but yeah. you know, that, that service is fine. You can go to identitytheft.gov also uh, to find out more details on what to do. Um, I have some more advice for you. You can monitor your existing credit card and bank accounts as frequently as possible. I mean, I'm just talking about look at your bill. Scrutinize the bill for any activity that you don't recognize. Um, it's hard to do because do you remember if you went to Dunkin' Donuts 29 days ago or Starbucks or the particular one that you went to? It's, a real, it's very hard to do. But what you could do is you could try to switch over to cash and make your credit transactions much simpler for a few months just in case then you do see something that pops on there you know all right you know I went I used my credit card 5 times this month what are these other charges on here that that's what cash will get you but using cash you know it's inconvenient oh and you know what you actually have to go back to May now to your bills starting in May because that's when the breach happened so let's say the one of the worst things that could have happened uh is that the data was beginning to be hacked in May and you were 
taken advantage of in May. Well, you better go back to your May credit card accounts, all of them, everything that you've got out there and check the, check them. It sucks. I'm sorry, guys. You know, I'm, I'm going to have to do it too, but this is what we got to do when multi-billion dollar companies like Equifax completely screw up our, our security. All right, I'll continue. You could also put a fraud alert on your files. This is what I did when I, when my driver's license got duped and I, I was, I was essentially, uh, I essentially was suffering from identity theft. I put this fraud alert on there and it was pretty cool. So what happens is the fraud alert shuts everything down and any creditor is told, hey, this person that you're trying to extend credit to, they had identity theft or may have had identity theft and they want you to contact them before you extend them any credit. And a lot of times the creditor will call you up and say, hello, Mr. Novella, are you applying for a Visa MasterCard right now or whatever? That's pretty cool. Now, I think you you have to pay for that, and it can only last a year or two. The rules may have changed when I did it, but I'll tell you, it was awesome because I got phone calls every time I did anything, and it made me feel very secure. I think it is one of the things that you should seriously consider. It's called adding a fraud alert. Look it up. You can find all these details online and figure out how to do it. Now, Bob, I'm getting to your taxes one. File your taxes as early as you possibly can from here on out until you die. Why? Because people are actually filing your taxes for you without you knowing about it because they want your tax returns. Good luck. I hope that no one really gets hurt by this, but I'm sure a lot of people will. Yeah, it is scary. Yeah, you're basically just hiding in the herd. You're just hoping that because there's so many other people that you're just going to (laughs) <laughs> to get overlooked. It's the duck Herd and cover technique. Right? It's the, yep. the duck and cover technique in the nuclear uh, war in the nuclear strike scenario. Yeah. <laughs> Just hoping that yeah, like right. your credit history is not interesting to them. Well, I don't even think that's it. I think your number just comes up, you know. I mean, I don't Probably. who the hell knows how they how they, you know, slice through this data and why they pick who or whatever, but you know, Bob got Bob got hit once, I got mm-hmm. hit once. All right, let's move on to a happier topic. Uh, well, that tell would be anything. About, at this tell point. us about Cassini's grand finale. Oh, yeah, right. a happier topic: the death of a beloved spacecraft. What are you crazy? A success, of course it's uh, happy. an incredibly successful, successful, successful one. Yeah. One that yeah, people, right. remember people worried about it blowing up in the atmosphere on launch in the 1990s, saying, "Oh, don't launch the thing; it has nuclear material on it." What a bunch of crap. Go ahead, Bob. Well, as of this recording, NASA's Cassini spacecraft is in the middle of its maneuvers to destroy itself high in Saturn's atmosphere to prevent contaminating its moons. Um, so the entire Cassini-Huygens mission was Huygen. one of the – Huygen! Huygen was one of the – Okay, I thought, I thought Jay was going to say it first, Steve. You did well. So the, gotta, that gotta that mission, it was w- one of the premier uh, missions ever un- ever undertaken. In fact, Popular Mechanics is calling it the greatest space mission of our time. Now, Cassini-Huygens was uh, launched 20 years ago. Um, it was supposed to last four years. It toured Saturn for 13 years and essentially transformed our knowledge of Saturn and Titan and the other moves and moons in the, the entire system. But unfortunately, its time is up. Uh, the only reason it lasted this long is because it's actually a fascinating story. We're using uh, a gravity assists from Saturn's moon Titan to change the course of the spacecraft so it can, so it could visit, you know, go here and there and visit cool. various moons and areas of, of Saturn, which is pretty cool. Um, and it did this by stealing momentum and, momentum and kinetic energy from Titan. Um, Cassini didn't need, therefore, nearly as much fuel as it would have otherwise needed, which is kind of fascinating because, you know, Titan's got plenty of kinetic energy and momentum to spare. So just a little tiny, tiny bit that Titan would never miss. Bam, you can, you could change course of the spacecraft and do all sorts of cool stuff. So that's pretty interesting. But still, though, the fuel was limited. It's finite. It had to run out. And as of now, it's essentially running on fumes. 
And uh, that left a few options, like potentially putting uh, the spacecraft into a parking orbit around the sun or an orbit around other planets. Uh, but the bottom line was that the possibility of it accidentally crashing and contaminating one of the 60-some-odd the uh, moons of Saturn, especially Enceladus and Titan, uh, was just too uh, too distasteful. So they decided to make it immolate itself like a meteor in the high-altitude atmosphere of Saturn. Now, that decision, though, led – to or perhaps was caused by the amazing opportunities it presented, like last April's dramatic dive uh, through the gap in the rings. Remember that, uh, giving uh, giving us the best uh, images yet of the of the inner rings of Saturn. And it was a little bit of a dicey maneuver going through that big gap in the rings. They weren't sure what was going to happen, but uh, but it survived and it was in- incredible. So the big milestones this past week uh, started this past Monday. Two days ago, September 11th, uh, Cassini sealed its fate with uh, utter finality by making a distant flyby of Titan, which altered its trajectory just enough to put it on a definite collision course with Saturn. Uh, NASA is calling that last approach to Titan the kiss goodbye. Uh, since once that happened, uh, nothing short of a Q intervention was going to stop uh, Cassini's destruction. Thursday the 14th, which is tomorrow, Cassini transmits all of its images in preparation for its final plunge. So it's basically going to just empty its hard drive and say, here, have everything. This is everything I've got so far. And uh, and then Friday, Friday, September 15th is last day. Uh. What's, that? What's that quote from? Last day. Hmm. Logan's run, man. Yes, very good, Jay. Very good. So the last three hours before dissolution, all of all the data that Cassini acquires is going to go straight to Earth. The antennas pointed to Earth. It's going to go from the sensors right to Earth without going to the onboard solid state memory because you know why does it need to go there when it's going to be dead in in a few hours. Then once it enters the atmosphere, it will um, it will be doing some cool stuff like directly sampling uh, what's there in the atmosphere using its ion and, neut- and neutral mass spectrometer, something you obviously can't do from space. So, like I said earlier, this is a fantastic opportunity that it never would have uh, it never would have had. So during this time, it will also try to understand the ring rain phenomenon. Have you guys heard about that? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. I hadn't heard about it. You can kind of figure out what it is by what the words are. The ring rain phenomenon uh, was actually discovered by Voyager in the early 80s, where it seemed like some some of the rings were raining down on Saturn and actually causing uh, having an impact on the atmosphere itself. So they it's going to discover, and by the time you hear this, it will hope maybe already have discovered you know what that phenomenon is. And uh, if it's real, but that signal, once it's in the atmosphere, it's really only going to last about 20 to 30 seconds in the atmosphere. Soon after that, perhaps a minute or two, the heat and pressure uh, of uh, of reentry uh, is going to just crush and vaporize the spacecraft. And hasta la vista, Cassini, it'll be history. And um, but an hour, about an hour after it's already been dead, we're going to be getting the last signals, and so that'll be kind of interesting. Uh, but yeah, so here's to you, Cassini. What an amazing job. If you want to see some great images and commentary on, on, on Cassini's history and what it discovered, go to the, uh, the popular mechanics website it has a wonderful article, the best I've seen in the past couple of days, uh, regarding this. So go check it out. I love uh, the stories when, uh, these missions take on greater lifespans than their anticipated originally yeah. anticipated. Yeah, me too. It, me it's too. such a such a great thing and there's many examples of that and this is one of them. All right, Evan, you're going to talk about an astronomical item too. Apparently we're living in a giant void. Oh, yes, we are. And there was a two-minute video making the rounds a few days ago and it's about our galaxy, the Milky Way. 
And what the video neatly packages for us are the results of a relatively new study uh, by researcher Benjamin Heuschfurt from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but first, I have to give you a very, very quick backstory. In 2013, researcher Ryan Keenan and astronomer Amy Barger of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, along with Lennox Cowie from the University of Hawaii, had shown that the Milky Way resides in a void, at least when observed on a cosmic scale. So our region of space contains far fewer galaxies, stars, and planets that had been previously thought. We exist essentially in one of the holes of the Swiss cheese structure of the cosmos is how Damn, they describe man. it. I know. That's fascinating. It is. It is. Now, by contrast, so you have a lot of these void areas of the universe. About four-fifths of known space is, is are voids. But the other one-fifth are known as filaments, right, Bob? Yeah. These, these are high concentrations, densely packed areas of the universe where galaxies, dust, superclusters, and planets reside. So you've got voids and you've got filaments. Now, the new research suggests that because we are in a void, gravity is actually pulling us closer towards one of our nearest cosmic filaments. Now, why is this important and why is it newsworthy? Well, because in astronomy, there is a debate about just how fast universal expansion is occurring. Astronomers refer to this rate of expansion as the Hubble constant. Yeah, baby. Yes. And astronomers (laughs) have been using two different methods to measure the Hubble constant. The first one is that they look at supernova explosions in other galaxies, and they measure how fast those easily measurable light emissions are moving away from us. And the other method is that they- Yes, Bob, you're so good. The cosmic (laughs) microwave background radiation left over from the Big Bang, and they see how fast that is actually moving as well. But here's the rub. These two methods don't give you the same Hubble constant. They can't both be right, so which one is more likely to be correct? So it's a Hubble hubbub. It is a Hubble hubbub. (laughs) Very well said. Due to these recent studies concerning us and our void, the the research suggests that the cosmic microwave background radiation method to measure the Hubble constant is likely the more accurate of the two. This is because we are being pulled by gravity towards the filaments, and our movement could be causing the measurement of the Hubble constant using the supernova measurement method to be off. And therefore, cosmic microwave background radiation method of measuring Hubble constant is likely more accurate. And the results of the study were actually first presented at a meeting of the of the American Astronomical Society back in June. But again, this video is making the rounds that was just released a few days ago. So it's sort of putting the story back into the news cycle. And our void happens to be a very good void in order to make these kinds of measurements because our void is at least seven times as large as the average void that they've so far measured in the universe, with a radius measuring roughly 1 billion light years. And in fact, as of right now, our void is the largest that astronomers have ever measured. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. And in case you were worried, if you were worried that, oh, what, we're in a void, what are we missing? Uh, really, you can't really, really tell you know, just by casually looking up at the sky. And maybe our, our, our night sky is probably a little bit darker than, than it would have been um, right. if we were in a filament. Not, not dramatically so, I don't think, but uh, a little bit darker. Now, my gut reaction to this is, what are the odds that our galaxy is in the middle of the largest void that we've seen? It, you know, what's the possibility that this is an artifact of our perspective of just you know, observing the universe from from where we are. I would, would think that they've already taken those things into account. I, I know they're thinking of that. I know that obviously they've thought of this, you know, but 
it's still i don't just i don't know i wasn't able to find like how confidently have they ruled out that this is just an artifact of how we're we're making these measurements mm-hmm. these observations you know Dude, wouldn't it be an awful coincidence if we ended up being in the middle of the biggest void that we've seen well yeah it does I, it, it would give us a special like, place yeah. in the universe where we probably don't otherwise you know yeah, wait, why, that is, why is that awful well, just it violates the principle of of uh, ordinariness that there's nothing gotcha. special about us. That just as it's just it's a statistical thing. By definition, most of the universe is in these dense filaments. Most of the stuff exists in the filaments. Yes. Well, I mean, so you know. by definition, statistically, any random bit of stuff is unlikely to be in a void. You know, it's right. more likely to be. Yeah, in a I mean, I hear what you're saying, Steve, but at the same time, you know, it kind of is what it is. Like, you know, I, I do. <laughs> that's the that's the point. Is it know? is it what it is, and why? You know, why might we think it is that way when it might not necessarily be that way? So yeah, I'm curious to see how confident they are because it does seem like a little bit like, oh, really, the biggest void, and we're in it. Like, uh, it's yeah, it's I one agree. of those things where it's just not elegant. You know, what I mean, this doesn't make it right or wrong. Again, no. it's just. You know, as a as a science enthusiast, some things seem elegant to me. I know this is all bias, and other things are they always strike me as really is that really the way it's going to turn out to be? That doesn't feel right. That there's something that that seems to violate some statistics it, or right. logic. It about just it. it raises the burden of proof in my mind. That's yeah. all. It just raises it's the burden true. of proof. If we're if you're but saying that, we're special, ah, uh, you got to prove that a little bit more than if you were saying we're ordinary. But um, also, like, I mean, it just depends on how you view probabilistic statistics. You know what I mean? Something's always going to be in the tails of the curve. Yeah. Like it it is it's it seems random because we're like oh, and we also have life because we haven't found life within our immediate um, surroundings either. But there's also a bunch of things about our you know the milky way there's a bunch of things about the solar system that are like totally typical life is Quite different average. because life is yeah. is one of those things where any life that arose no matter how it's unlikely special. it is would 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 perceive their own existence and would think that you know and would be special you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah so, that's interesting so you've got that whole psychological like layer yeah, to it it's just different than you know, but we're just, you know, is our, is, our su- is our sun ordinary? Is our solar mm-hmm. system ordinary? Is our galaxy ordinary? If we found out that our galaxy was a really rare type of galaxy, like a one in a billion, that would, okay, it could happen, but what are the odds? You know, it's just unlikely that that's what we're going to discover. And we're also probably, we are bad at probability. <laughs> that's, we, that's, we're that's bad at probability true. and historically our view of normalcy or maybe to mm. use a better word, typicality is heavily biased because it's based on our own perspective so yeah. the you know the more um refined our tools are getting the more we can compare ourselves to others but it's always kind of like how are we from our own perspective the same or different it's like inherently biased yeah. as a question yeah but our, the, the, and here's the specific thing it triggered in me it's like when we first discovered that every galaxy is moving away from us it would have been incorrect to think that we lived in a privileged spot in the universe at the center. Yeah, at the center. It turns out that everybody looking at the universe would see every other, you know, galaxy cluster exactly. moving away from them. So my question is, is it possible that anyone observing the universe the way we're observing it would, would give, be given the illusion that they're in the middle of a void? In the yeah, same way that question. everyone would see every other, you know, all, all the other galaxies except their own local cluster rushing away from them. That's my question. And well, I'm, I'm sure astronomers who know more than we do have a, have a more sophisticated answer to it. But I just wonder where we are with that. You know, I don't know, Bob, 
or Evan, if you've encountered anything that any more insight into that, it sounds like I something I, I would um, want to follow up on. I would want to sure hear I mean, an astronomer give me a, give me a, a a thorough answer to that question. You're not suggesting though, Steve, that that question is putting it in any way in, in doubt what the the crux of the story is, which is that yeah um, yeah it, yeah that's exactly what I'm oh, saying. You are saying it affects it affects the. Maybe we're not that, that in a void. We Maybe it's an illusion. No. That's what I'm saying. Maybe we're no. But how fast? How fast the universe is expanding? I mean, that's that's really what this the the crux of the yeah, story is. Yeah, but that's an indirect piece of information, right? We're inferring from that. That's that's part of also my skepticism is that we're inferring it indirectly. And and that always introduces the possibility of confounding factors that maybe we haven't considered something. Um, yeah, if they had if they found secondary evidence showing that the cosmic microwave background radiation of determining the Hubble constant is 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 accurate, and the uh, the supernova method was inaccurate, that would be further evidence supporting the possibility that we were in a void. Um, but as primary evidence, it's probably not you know not maybe not convincing enough. Well, anyway, there's a question mark on my mind next to this one. Let me just say that. I'm not, All right. Well, it doesn't that make you a skeptic. All I'm right. just saying that this that, that, that's my <laughs> gut reaction to this. I want to explore it further. It, it feels to me like the Hubble observation that everyone's moving away from us. That it's a perspective thing. But we'll see. You know, we'll we'll see how that plays out. All right. All, all right, Kara, tell us about microplastics. Oh yeah, this is a rough one. Sorry to end on a low note, you guys. There's a there's a, a <laughs> blog post on Discover Magazine by Nathaniel Sharping, and gosh, the headline is "We're all a little plastic on the inside," and that's really what what he's talking about. You guys have heard of microplastics, right? Oh yeah, yeah. So um, <laughs> they're in cosmetics and things like that. They're everywhere. So let's talk a little bit about like the actual definition. Um, they're ubiquitous. Yeah, Noah defines them as anything that's made of plastic that's under five millimeters um, in diameter. So, of course, that means some of them you can see with your naked eye, but many of them are even smaller. They're microscopic. They sort of look like grains of sand, except, you know, they're made out of plastic. Um, microplastics are often small enough to pass through the digestive system, no problem, but they can get stuck and they can deliver atmospheric pollutants and additives to our tissues. And this has actually been shown in studies on worms and crabs, but has not been demonstrated in humans. Um, lots and lots of studies have found microplastics in our food. There's a 2013 study that found them in honey and sugar samples from Germany, France, Italy, Spain, and Mexico. Um, there they uh, envisioned that they were both probably found within the hives themselves. Um, bees were getting environmental pr plastics and integrating them into the hives, but also from the processing and the packaging plants. Um, a 2014 study found them in mussels and oysters. Not surprising, but they were in really high concentrations in those studies compared to some of these others. Um, another 2014 study uh, described microplastics in German beer. A 2015 study found them in table salt in China. And in Paris, they were documented in sewage, freshwater, and get this, the air. There were microplastics mm. in the freaking air. Yeah, so even more recent research, in April of this year, a study found microplastics in commercial salt, in 16 different brands that originated um, in Australia, France, Iran, Japan, Malaysia, New Zealand, Portugal, and South Africa. And more recent studies have um, corroborated that and extended that table salt finding to um, brands that came from the United Kingdom, Spain, China, and yes, you were waiting for it, the United States. 
Bear in mind, though, that many of the levels in some of these studies were quite, quite low. How low do they have an effect? It's very hard to tell because the impact of microplastic ingestion on human health is virtually unknown. Because almost all humans have microplastics in them, there are no controls. We have no idea how to compare someone who has ingested microplastics to someone who hasn't. Wow, okay. it's because when we're looking at, right, we, there's a big difference between experimental research and um, correlational research. It is highly likely that it's unethical to ask people to eat a bunch of plastic <laughs> and then compare yeah. different health uh, measures over time. <laughs> um, and the truth is, if you sample a bunch of different people, you're not really going to have a very good luck finding people who don't have plastic in their systems. Um, so it's, it's hard to even do correlational research there. And their estimate that was between 1950 and 2015, 9.1 billion tons of plastic had been created. Yeah. Holy Christ. Yeah. Only 9% was recycled. Oh, what? Yep. 12% was incinerated. And 79% of it ended up in landfills, the ocean, or other parts of the environment. And they also took this data and made some projections. And their projection was that by 2050, we'll have produced 38 billion tons of plastic. Also, another um, really big kind of landmark study in 2014, an international team of researchers estimated that 5.25 trillion pieces of plastic, these teeny tiny little pieces, weighing collectively over 268,000 tons, were actively floating in the ocean. And and how long does it take plastic to naturally sort of... It doesn't. Uh-huh. That's that's the frustrating thing about plastic. Plastic doesn't biodegrade. What it does is break down into tinier and tinier and tinier and tinier components. All right. Thanks, Kara. Jay, it's Who's That Noisy time. Last week, I played this noisy. It's kind of eerie, isn't it? Yeah, it's really eerie. Very cool. musical. Mm-hmm. Okay, it sounds so like a flute. Yeah, it, it does. I, I, I really, do, I do think it has that tonal value to it. Steve, oh my god, I love it when I, I have something bird related to share with you. That I know you <laughs> yeah. don't. Have this one right. is is wonderfully. It's a bird, but let me let me play you that same file at the correct speed. Listen to this. Okay, that's what you would hear if you were with the bird. But when you slow it down, listen again now. So how come when you slow it down, we're hearing a lot more notes and a lot more stuff going on that you would normally hear, you know, the bird singing at full speed, you, we can't perceive it. Yeah, we can't process that. All that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so this is that's the skin of the apple. Now let me dig in and tell you what you're actually listening to. This is called a veery thrush bird of North America. It's a ni- it's a nightingale. It's doing something very interesting. When we slow down, we can. The scientists have now studied the patterns sung by these birds, and they conclude that the bird's song 
is kind of somewhat like improvised swing jazz. This means that the bird could possibly be playing with the notes and the duration of those notes. And it, and it sounds so similar that it shares these similar swing music qualities to it. So to find out whether other bird songs can possess this quality, Tina Rosk and uh, Max, of Max Planck Institute of, uh, for Empirical Aesthetics in Germany and colleagues have used a mathematical technique called multifractural analysis to study the rhythms of the thrush nightingale. And the Nightingale song has subtle deviations in note and timing that make it more expressive. And the team concludes that um, this is, it swings in the broader sense of the term. So I hear that. I absolutely hear the bird playing with the notes. Yeah, I hear the scoops. That's like a a giveaway, how it like slides. Yep. Yeah, it slides into the notes and then Mm -hmm. the length of the notes are are different. And I guess if you listen to the bird's, uh, song over a long period of time that you'll actually start to kind of hear the patterns and everything and you'll get where the note the, the bird is playing with the the overall melody guys that is improv- improvisation that is pretty awesome so it makes me just think that some birds are singing songs and they're enjoying it and they're really like getting <laughs> getting into it so um i wanted to thank uh Colbeth for sending that in that's a wonderful noisy so the winner for this week is uh cassie Egerton and uh, Cassie said uh, she nailed it this week. Who's that noisy? A slow down recording of the song of a bird called a uh, bird called the Viri. Um, very cool. Thank you so much, uh, guys. Uh, there was one notable mention uh, that someone uh, wrote in uh, named Den that said that's the sound Steve's new computer will make in four years. I thought that was very. Cool. <laughs> 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 no, it sounds so sad. No, it's no, like it a requiem mass. <laughs> it's the it's the new ring phone for the iPhone 10. Yeah, right. This week's noisy was sent in by a listener named Gordon Haas. Gordon, thank you. I really love this week's Noisy. I think everyone's going to love it here, especially when you find out what it is. So take a listen. I think that is really beautiful. It's also really mm. long. Yeah, <laughs> that was a long noisy. So this one is a little bit longer than normal. I asked Steve uh, to please leave in as much of it as he could. That's the only clue I'm going to give you is that the length of this is ultimately important. That's my clue for this week. Thank you, Todd. It's a wonderful noisy. Anybody have a guess or any cool noises? You can email me at WTN at theskepticsguide.org. All right, thanks, Jay. We are joined now by Massimo Piliucci. Massimo, welcome back to The Skeptic's Guide. It's a pleasure to be here, as usual. Massimo, we always have to say, has the distinction of being the first person we interviewed on the show. And he has been back many times to get us up to speed on what's going on in the world of philosophy, because... Massimo is a philosophizer, right? Is that what you call you guys? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> so what prompted this interview, though, was I, I caught an article 
that was written by a colleague of yours about logical fallacies. And it was like an ice pick in my freaking heart, this article. <laughs> because he said that he thinks we should do away with the whole idea of logical fallacies. Yeah. He cited you what? as kind of implying that you were on the same page with him. So I immediately said, Massimo, don't say it's not true. <laughs> tell me what, tell me what's going on here. <laughs> so give us, give us the quick, what's, what's the point here? Why, why is, why are some philosophers saying that lot, there's a problem with logical fallacies? The concept of logical fallacies. Okay. So, so this whole thing started out because Martin Baldry is the guy that you're talking about. Yes. And, and Fabio Palieri and myself wrote an article that got published in Argumentation, which is a technical journal on essentially informal logic and rhetoric and things like that. And, uh, uh this was, this, this came out in 2015 and the paper was, uh, entitled The Fake, the Flimsy and the Fallacious demarcation arguments in, in real life. And the, the idea was to take a look at this, at this whole business of informal logical fallacies. Now, as you know, as you guys know, in the skeptics community, we make a lot of use of these, of, of these things. Uh, mm-hmm. Ever since uh, Carl Sagan's baloney detector, you know, that sort of stuff. Uh, then we, you know, we like to point out, well, wait a minute, that's an adominum, that's a genetic fallacy, that's a this and that or the other. Now, the fact is, however, that in the uh, technical uh, field of sort of informal logic and rhetoric, uh, informal fallacies have gone down in uh, sort of esteem for a number of years now, for, for like almost almost 20 years, really. And, and so Martin and Fabio and I took a look at the literature and sort of did a survey, basically, and then added a, a couple of, of things of our own, particularly as far as the pseudoscience uh, angle is concerned. So... What is the problem? The problem is that people have tried for decades, literally for decades, to come up with a very tight, you know, very good uh, explanation of what an informal logical fallacy is. Okay. So, and, and they failed, as it turns mm-hmm. out. Because every time you try, unlike the formal uh, reasoning, you know, informal, formal logical, logical reasoning, you know, syllogism or some, something like that, that's, uh, that's actually been done many times and it's, it's been, it's solid. It stays there. I mean, even Aristotle and the Stoics back in, uh, you know, Greek Roman times, they had a whole classification of types of syllogisms, which one were uh, valid and which one were not. And in the, that classification has essentially not changed since. It has been, you know, validated over and over and over. But when it comes to informal fallacies, people have tried to kind of, you know, ground them a little bit more in, in, uh, in, a, in, a, in a, I guess, in a formal way, if you, if you will. Uh, that is giving a theory of argumentation for uh, that would explain exactly what is it about informal fallacies that is uh, logically unsound. And these attempts have failed because uh, they run into what Martin, Fabio, and I call the, the fallacy fork, which is either you make, you, you construct fallacies, uh, you know, informal fallacies in, in a, very formal way, in a, in a way that is, you know, you know, you, you provide a classification of them, you, you give a definition, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But if you do that, it turns out that um, yes, you can show that they are formally invalid kinds of reasonings, but it's hard to find real life examples of anybody actually using them like that. So your other choice is then to de- define informal fallacies in a little bit more. Uh, you know, nuanced way of taking account real life complexities and, you know, pragmatics of discourse and all that sort of stuff. But if you do that, then it turns out that informal fallacies are actually very, very close 
uh, kins to perfectly fine kinds of reasoning. And so that it becomes difficult to come up with a general classification and, and you simply have to go example by example, case by case and say, well, was this a good user or not? So let me give you an example just to make clear what we're talking about. Uh, you know, if I say, uh, we're having a conversation, I say, oh, you know, don't, don't trust that guy because he's, you know, he's notoriously, uh, you know, untrustworthy or something like that. Then, then technically I'm committed in an informal fallacy you know, uh, known as an adominum. I'm, I'm, try, I'm, I'm attacking the character of the person without actually addressing the specific issue that we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. And that, if you take it, you know, formally like that, it's clearly a logical fallacy. There's no question about it. But now consider a slight variation of the same thing. It's like, uh, you know, Steve and I are going out and, and we're, we're about to buy a car from a used car dealer. And, uh, and I say to Steve, you know, be careful because this guy I checked, this guy actually has a reputation of selling lemons, uh, to a lot of, uh, of, of, uh, of his clients. Now, if I put it that way, that's a perfectly legitimate, uh, warning to, uh, Steve, you know, to be careful about buying the, the, the car. Does that demonstrate that every car that this guy is selling is a lemon? No, of course not. But, but Steve would be naive uh, and he might pay dearly if he actually ignored that kind of warning. And, and so that's the thing, that a lot of logic, illog- uh, sorry, formal fallacies tend to be really, really close kins with fairly reasonable kind of warnings about what's going on in any particular situation. And the distinction between a, an actual fallacy and a reasonable heuristic becomes kind of fuzzy and dependent on the specific case. So that's what... Uh, what um, Martin, uh, Fabio, and I were pointing out in that, in that paper. Yeah, which is fine. So he's basically saying that informal logical fallacies are informal and you can't formalize them, you know, to which I say, no shit. That's kind <laughs> of the whole point <laughs> is that they're guidelines, you know, they're just, they're, yeah, not, you can't formalize them. Otherwise they would be formal logical fallacies. I'm not so, so, but the big problem I had, with what he, his position was when he said that, and I don't know to what extent you think this is true, that people generally don't use the really hardcore forms of the informal logical fallacies. And I was able to easily rattle off a lot of examples of people doing that. And I'm sure with a little bit of thought, we can come up with a lot more. So, you know, I felt like he needed to get out there in the real world. If he, th- if he doesn't think that people are using hardcore logical fallacies in, in their arguments, that was kind of his position. No one's using these extreme forms. They're using these softer forms that are not that fallacious. So I mean, that's not just, just not true. Uh, I, I've had probably collectively thousands of examples of people using hard and fast informal logical fallacies in their extreme versions. Um, just to give one example, you know, alternative medicine proponents will very commonly say that this treatment works because, you know, I had a symptom, I took the treatment, and I felt better. Therefore, it works. And even when you challenge them on that logic, they double down and say, no, the fact that I got better after it could only be explained by the fact that it worked, that it, that this is valid. And that's, that is, you know, par for the course with them. That's not an extreme example or a hard example to find. So, you know, he needs to get out there in the real world a little bit more, I think. Point, and that is why, in fact, I don't follow Martin. In, so the, the, Martin then wrote this um, not technical article following up 
uh, just recently that, uh, that that you were referring to earlier. Yeah. And where he actually said, and that's a single author article. I'm not a co-author in there. Um, and and where he actually says, you know what? Just the whole thing is a mess. Just get rid of the, of the whole idea of informal policies. No, I don't. I do not follow him there. However, yeah. I do think that he has a point that we may want to consider as a community. So yeah, you're right. Uh, he probably doesn't get out there as much um, as as we've done over the years. But the kind of examples you're talking about, which I do agree, are very easy to find. They're easy to find often on, you know, sort of in colloquial uh, situations, like you know, yeah. when I'm having a conversation with somebody on Facebook or whatever it is. But uh, for that paper in uh, in argumentation uh, in, the, in, the, in the journal argumentation, we actually did do some research with with both Martin and Fabio, and it turns out that when you look at sort of the, the published, you know, books or articles, uh, even about you know, defending things that we would consider pseudoscientific, yeah, people tend to be more careful about what they're mm-hmm. what they're saying and how they're putting it, right? And that actually was the target. But I think that you're absolutely right. I don't think we should get rid of it. However, there is a kernel and maybe a little bit more than a kernel of of uh, truth there, which is, you know, I, I be, as you know, I've been talking about this for some time uh, within the skeptic community. And Nexus, I gave this talk about sort of virtual epistemology. And, and mm-hmm. basically, I said, you know, if we want to be skeptics, yes, that's great. And we do a, at, at our best, we do do a service to, you know, humanity at large. We, we warn people about bad reasoning. We, we uh, try to tell them about stuff that can actually make a difference for their, for their lives. So I, I do believe that at its core, skepticism is a vital uh, sort of uh, contribution makes a vital contribution to society. However, that also comes with responsibilities, right? As Spider-Man would say, one of my favorite role models, uh, with great powers can come great responsibility. Now, sure. unfortunately, we don't have great powers, but whatever. You, you got the point. So uh, the issue is, if you want to go out there and you know to tell people and explain to people about good ways of reasoning, to reason and skepticism and all that sort of stuff, then you also have responsibilities about doing it well and carefully. And I have observed, precisely because they do get out there uh, to some extent, I have observed, you know, people uh, doing using informal fallacies is just a way to shut down this course. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So, I mean, there's even a website now, which actually, interestingly, I helped, I helped study it uh, when it was on a Kickstarter campaign. Uh, you know, your fallacy is. Now, it started out as an educational project, and that's why I backed it up. But the thing is, people now, I've seen over and over people on Facebook, you know, just ending a discussion by copying a link from that side and saying, your fallacy is, and that's it. That end the story. That's, yeah, they're substituting a label for an argument, for a thoughtful exchange. Absolutely. They're doing it wrong. I think what Martin is worried, maybe more than you and I are, but, but I think that it, it might be a good idea for us to at least consider the, the, the what Martin is worried about. So what Martin is worried is is two things. First of all, that actually that kind of casual use of informal fallacies is in fact encouraged, implicitly encouraged by things like, like by easy, easily accessible things like the baloney detector kit and that yeah. sort of stuff. And that people use it, do use it as a, as a way to shut down this course and not really even understanding what the, the background actually is. Not only that, but it's a true uh, 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 side, you know, weapon because, in fact, a lot of defenders of pseudoscience are, in fact, doing the same thing. I mean, let me let me read you a couple of examples from actually our paper with Martin, and I'm sure you recognize them. Hold on a second, I have them. So, for instance, when uh, um, Philip Johnson, of you know, the the guy that wrote defeating Darwinism, intelligent designer sort of proponent, 
you know, he turned Carl Sagan's concept of the baloney detection kit against us, against evolutionary mm-hmm. biologists, by accusing us of appeal to authority, you know. Um, yeah. And, and then ad hominem arguments and straw men. Uh, now, ID advocates, of course, are happy to resort to these kind of things, like the genetic fallacy, for instance, when the religious roots of their movement are being exposed. Right? Mm-hmm. Climate climate denialists flag the, the you know use the postdoc ergo propterock fallacy when scientists attribute global warming to human carbon emission. They say, ah, well, you know, it's just a correlation and doesn't follow from you know causation doesn't follow. Uh, and they cry ad populum fallacy when when somebody brings up the consensus opinion of expert panels uh, like like the IPCC. And of course, if you look at, at somebody and says, look, why do we believe in, in climate change? And, and, and the guy doesn't really have a good grasp of climate science and all that size. He says, well, I, I, you know, the experts say so. Superficially, that sounds like an argument ad populum, right? But it isn't. It's a very reasonable defer, deferring to expertise. So like, look, I'm not the expert, but the experts say so. Why wouldn't you? You know, trust the experts on this particular point. So that's what I think Martin is, is worried about. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. He absolutely ha- is correct about that. And you know that you and I have both been lecturing about this a lot within the skeptical movement. I tend to, to put that into the context of that's the fallacy fallacy. You're playing logical fallacy gotcha. And that is not what logical fallacies are for. They are to police your own thinking and to understand the structure of a valid argument for people. Versus an argument that kind of goes off the rails, but not not as a way of shutting down, not as a way of shutting down discussion, and not as a way of playing logical fallacy. Gotcha. But the, here's the thing: is that every tool of critical thinking and skepticism that we use is abused by the other side. Skepticism becomes denial, right? And denialism. Uh, everything that we do, logical fallacies are not the only one. All, you know, you, you can turn skepticism on its head if you are motivated to do that because there's no formula, right? There's no formal formula for what is a valid argument, what is a good argument. You, it requires logic and judgment and context and there's no way out of that. And if you're, mo- if you, if you engage in motivated reasoning, if you want to deny something, you can turn any statement into a logical fallacy with just a little creativity or a bias or make it seem like pseudoscience or say that there's not enough evidence or whatever. You could turn anything into denialism and you, we can't start chucking out our critical thinking tools one by one because people are abusing them because we'll have nothing left. That's not the approach. I, I think is that a slippery what we need slope? to do is to get people Get people to understand them <laughs> with more nuance, right? People need to understand logical fallacies with an appropriate level of nuance and, and understand that they, you, you know, how they can be easily abused. But you can't just get rid of them. I mean, because, you know, we, we, they are really useful tools for understanding argument, right? No, I, I completely agree with you. And that's why I sort of, that's, that's where I part company with Martin, um, uh, at least to, to some extent, it's certainly in terms of his, his recommendations. I mean, I think yeah. his analysis is correct, but his recommendation is, is a little, you know, it's killing the patient you know, yeah. to, to cure the disease kind of thing. Um, but let me go back just for one second to, to reiterate this thing. Uh, as I said, I now, I, I number of years now that I approach this thing from a point of view of virtue ethics. You know, virtue epistemology is just a particular subset of virtue ethics. And so I'm not as much concerned with Philip Johnson, 
or Bill Dembski or whoever the hell is the the the, the fallacious person of the of the day uh, or the week uh, misusing tools and trying to turn them against us. I mean that's their business. You know you're right. They're they're doing they're going to do that no matter what. Yeah, uh, that's also one of the reasons why you know some of my friends like you know uh, one of the co-organizers or Nexus, you know, Benny Pollack, he, he has a problem with the word skepticism. And, and he says, you know, the problem is every time I talk to some people, they say, oh, the skeptics, those are the people that deny everything, they don't believe in anything. It's like, no, mm-hmm. that's a cynic and all that sort of stuff. And, and he, so he says, we should probably just look for another term, you know, abandon the term skepticism. I say, no, we shouldn't. The hell with that. First of all, because it has a history, and history, I think it, it's worth preserving uh, to some extent. But second of all, because it doesn't matter what other word you're going to come up with, People eventually will turn against that one as well. Sure. Yeah. So, exactly. So you know that doesn't make that, that makes no 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 sense to sort of give give completely away uh, because you're not going to make any progress. What I am concerned about, however, is so the, the virtual ethical approach is not about beating other people on the head with some kind of uh, uh, stick or conceptual stick or another, but about examining your own practice and say, yeah, what am I doing here? Am I doing the right thing? Am I behaving the right thing? And so I think that as a community, it does, you know, articles like the one that I wrote with Martin and and Fabio, and and maybe even the the, the controversial sort of pushing the envelope a little bit uh, stuff that Martin is doing, at least um, opens up the conversation within the community. Mm-hmm. And say, well, all right, maybe I don't actually understand this logical fallacies business very well. You know, maybe I should be a little more careful. Maybe I shouldn't yeah. just go to the website and 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 put a link there, and that's, uh, that's the end of the story. That is, I think, what I'm concerned with, and I think that we're on the same page on that one. I'm all right, well, Massimo, thank you so much for spending this much time with us. This was a lot of fun, as I expected it would be. <laughs> it was a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll have you back again soon. Definitely, you know, flag me if any interesting topics come up you think we should talk about. You you can count on it. All right. Take care. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. Aha. Yeah. <laughs> Three regular news items this week. Oh, boy. Or maybe they're irregular, but they're news items. <laughs> okay, here we go. Item number one. In a recent paper, computer scientists argue that the soon-to-be-developed quantum computers will completely destroy all existing internet security. Item number two, the first global map of water in the moon's soil shows a patchy pattern largely confined to the poles. And item number three, a new study finds that squirrels organize their nut caches by various criteria such as type and quality. Jay, go first. Okay, so in a recent paper, these computer scientists, they argue that the soon-to-be-developed quantum computers will be completely destroy all existing internet security. Shit. Huh. Well, I can make the exact opposite argument that they are going to bolster internet security in a way that we've never known before. But that is intriguing because of the raw power of these computers. They would be able to chug through what we would consider now like 10,000 years of processing. You know, whatever. I'm just throwing out a round number, but like that's the idea. Like right now, if you have... An alphanumeric password with upper and lower case with random characters and stuff, you know, the longer it is, the amount of time it would take to decrypt your password or to figure it out could be 
you know, huge. But okay, I get it. Um, but I do think if 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 Steve screwed with this one, that's how he screwed with it. The second one is the first global map of water in the moon soil shows a patchy pattern largely confined to the poles. Water in the moon soil. Well, okay. And uh, why would the why would there be a pattern, and why would the water be around the poles? That's probably because um, people put the poles there to show where there's water to avoid, out of safety reasons. So it's just more of a safety measure. Okay, that's what I think about water on the moon. <laughs> and then number three. <laughs> what? <laughs> just, just roll with, roll roll with, with me, it, Kara. Roll with Enjoy, it. Roll with me, please. Let's have some fun here. I have no idea. I know that there's, you know, on the Earth that there's, you know, ice on the poles, but I don't know. Um, that Maybe that's just the last of the water that's there um, that we could find. A new study finds that squirrels organize their nut caches by various criteria, such as type and quality. How freaking cute is that? <laughs> I mean, seriously, if it's true, oh my God, like you're adorable. You're already cute because you're furry, but now you're organizing your nuts into different caches and, you know, hmm, I got like my big... Awesome ones here. I, I would imagine that if they are doing this, that they're doing it, you know, maybe like, okay, I got to eat this cash first because, you know, these nuts don't last as long and, you know, these are the ones that will last longer type of deal. Or I think that one is science. I think that squirrels do that because they're awesome and they're adorable. I also believe that the poles are in the water and all that. Yes, I believe it. I believe in the moon. I believe in water. So therefore, I believe in that news item. <laughs> I do not think that. Um, I do not think that quantum computers are going to destroy internet security. I think they're going to make real internet security for the first time. Okay, Evan. Quantum computers completely destroying all existing internet security. That seems extreme to me. Completely destroying. Maybe some. I don't know about completely. I mean, that's that's quite a statement. And um, uh, I, I don't know what they're basing this on. <sighs> Bob probably has more of an insight to this th- than I do, though. Uh, let's see. Global map of water on the moon's soil shows a patchy pattern, largely confined to the poles. I don't know about this one either, because I would think that the... Water would not necessarily be confined to the poles, but maybe more like uh, in the shadow of craters, say, which are all over the moon. So uh, I, I don't know. I don't know why it would be, um, you know, a pole phenomenon. It's not like there's an atmosphere uh, on the moon, sort of, to uh, to help determine that. Like we like we understand it happens in planets. Uh, the last one. Squirrels organizing their nut caches by various criteria. I mean, they they have the good sense to gather the nuts in in the first place, so why not? Why not have various criteria? And it was in that Willy Wonka movie um, in which they – this is exactly what they did. They threw out the bad nuts and and kept the good ones. So I think that's – therefore, it's going to be science. So is it the moon or is it the computer? The thing about the computer is completely destroying. That's what's throwing me off there. But also, the one about the moon – Largely confined to the poles. I don't think that's right. I, I think I think it has more to do with the craters on the moon, and they're all over the place, not the poles. So I, I have to go with the moon one as being the fiction. Okay, Kara? I'm going to agree with you guys that squirrels organize their nuts by criteria. So then I'm torn between basically Jay's argument and Evan's argument because I am not capable of coming up with my own argument right now. <laughs> I feel like I just don't know enough about why water goes to the poles and about what the poles really do. I don't know. Is water on the moon? It also doesn't say liquid water. 
it just says water. So are you talking about ice? It's cold on the moon, right? Or is it not cold on the moon? <laughs> oh God, I have no idea. <laughs> um, and does it have anything to do with the side of the moon we never see? I don't see why that would have to do with our title lock. That that shouldn't have anything to do with it. I don't know, though. <sighs> so many unknowns. And then what, what Jay was saying, like, you know, quantum computers, it, it, it goes so much farther beyond anything we can even we as like non i think theoretical physicists really can grasp like all the amazing things quantum com- computers are going to be able to do um but just in terms of code breaking obviously they'll be amazing at that but at the same time maybe we could develop some sort of new security feature but it does say destroy all existing internet security it doesn't say future security so i don't know i think maybe that one's grabbing me the most and i'm going to say that it's the fiction that the moon that the moon's water is on the poles and that it's actually science that quantum computers can kind of hack anything any security that we know now and we'll have to come up with new ways to to secure data. Okay, and Bob, that kind of makes sense to me that you know using the power of superposition it would be able to wreak havoc with say 128 bit encryption. Sure, that that makes a lot of sense. But on the other hand, and also Jay is correct in that it's, you know, I think using entanglement, quantum computers can make communications incredibly secure, amazingly secure. I mean, any eavesdropping by definition will screw with the entanglement and there you know somebody's hacking in. Um, the squirrels, yeah, squirrels can do that, I think. It makes kind of sense that they've got some preferred nuts. And they just like, oh, put the good nuts over here and the crappy nuts over there. So, preferred yeah, I, I would buy that. <laughs> I'm adding that to my list of vocabulary. <laughs> These are my preferred nuts. And the the moon one, yeah, I'm trying to think of a good reason why it would be patchy and but preferentially in the polls. I'm not really thinking of a, coming up with a good reason. You know, there certainly could be a mechanism to make it more – common in the polls, but I can't think of one. So I'm going to say that one is fiction. Okay. So you all agree on the squirrels. We'll start there. A new study finds that squirrels organize their (laughs) nut caches by various criteria such as type and quality. You all think that one is adorable science. And that one is science. Yay! Yeah, of course they organize their nuts. (laughs) So, but to study it, what they did was very interesting. They, uh, this is a um, UC Berkeley study. They fed different kinds of nuts to squirrels, uh, and they would would you know make the nuts available to the squirrels like in a central location, and then they use GPS trackers to see where they went to to store the nut. Right, so you have like a central location where you're giving. Uh, squirrels like a hazelnut and then an almond and then a peanut or whatever. And so, but they, they would take the same type of nut to the same place hmm. and then go to a different place with a different kind of nut. And they did this even no matter what order they gave them the nuts in or if they gave them in the same or different locations. You know, so they va- they okay. altered all the other variables. So it's so not like experimental design. Yeah, yeah, they, you know, they did. They they, they controlled through the other variables. So they like they they they're not just following a pattern regardless of what nut they get or their or whatever. Mm-hmm. They're not caching them close to where they found them. Or they they would have an area. That's my almond area. I'm going to put all my almonds over there. Mm-hmm. So they they think that that squirrels are using chunking as a memory strategy. You guys familiar mm-hmm. with chunking? 
Chunking yep. is when yeah. you group things together to make them easy to remember. Like you remember a phone Telephone number. numbers. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah, you chunk it into a three-digit and a four-digit number in the United States anyway. Yeah, so I think it might be easier for them to remember, oh, this is my hazelnut hoard over here, rather than just trying to remember where each individual nut is. Hmm. Right, because how many nuts can a, can a squirrel stockpile in a in an average? Oh, year? I know the answer to this. Um, t- ten thousand. Yeah, three to ten thousand. Yeah, what? ten thousand nuts a year. That's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot, that's of, a lot nuts. of nuts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were about to do like a tongue twister. How many nuts can a squirrel nut nut if a nut squirrel could nut squirrels? <laughs> that's, make, that's making the mashup at the end of the year. <laughs> Perfect. All right, let's work back to number two. The first global map of water in the moon's soil shows a patchy pattern largely confined to the poles. Jay, you think this one is science. Everyone else thinks this one is the fiction. So now the, the possible... So first I'll say that they did they have done the first global map of water on the moon's soil. That part is true. But what pattern did that global map re- map reveal and what does that tell us about the source of water in the moon mm. in the soil? Oh, could be like one collision with a comet? Yeah, it, if it's mostly coming from meteorite impacts, then That's you everywhere. would expect a pat but it would be patchy, right? It would be where the meteors struck that that had the water in them. And it would be in the craters, like Evan said. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> I am. A, I'm a little surprised that you guys, you know, were skeptical of the the polar distribution because why? And I'm not sure what you were saying, Bob. You know, it could be really hot or really cold. What does it matter? But that means everything, right? If it's really hot versus really cold. So how much sun the soil is getting, and how and the angle of that sun absolutely affects, you know, uh, if, if the water gets evaporated. Yeah, yeah but or, my point, Steve, was. Well, okay, then we got a range of temperature of 180 to 120. Well, so what? What's the difference? It's all hot. Whoa, you know? is that really the temperature on the moon? Oh, my God. It's crazy. It's either crazy in direct sun Crazy hot, crazy cold. Crazy hot Wait, or crazy so, cold. So during yeah. all of the moon landings, like, was it, were they on the, where were they? Well, if, they were, if, no, if the sun was out, they, that's why they have the, the uh, reflective, you know, helmets. Yeah, you're and, right. Were they just like melting inside, or did they have like air flowing inside of their? Well, they're yeah, they're temperature controlled inside the spacesuits, yeah. but they're also they have to keep the heat of the sun away while retaining their own heat to the to the you know the Jeez. vacuum of space. So, anyway, so the question is, you know, what was the source of that water, and what the map found was that water was really evenly distributed around the entire moon. Ah. So this one is the fiction. Oh, bummer. Yeah, but it wasn't it, – so it was evenly distributed, but it was still greater towards the poles and then got gradually less towards the equator, although it, there, was, there still was water by the equator. So what do you think that implies about the source of the water? Um, they one think, more time, it was greater at the equator? No. Yeah, no, no. no. Less, more water less at, at the, the poles, less oh, at the okay. equator. But it was, uni- uni- it was uniformly distributed. It was sort of evenly distributed. It was not patchy at all. Wait, that so, has something to do with the source of the water? Yeah. Hmm, I don't know. They think that means it's coming from the solar wind. What? Water I from the solar the wind. Most of this, most of the water is being deposited on the surface of the moon via the solar wind. What? Okay, never would have uh, guessed that. Uh, that's what they concluded from that. Not from meteors. So that's why it's not patchy. Wait, what? Water in space? What? Yeah. Yeah. Why not? 
you know, it's hydrogen and oxygen. Doesn't it need? And to? there's there's not only water molecules, but there's also HO, you know, like a single hydrogen and a single oxygen uh, together. Which so, but that you know, the the HO could still be a very important molecule if we're trying to you know set up a permanent colony on the moon because it could be a source. You could make water out of it or use it for fuel, make fuel sure. out of it mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. But water, of course, is really good source of you know potable water as well as fuel as well. How awesome is that? Yeah. So there was actually a lot more water than they thought. Um, it, yeah. Partly because it was so, it was so evenly distributed. It was basically everywhere. The water concentration reaches a maximum average of around 500 to 750 parts per million uh, in the higher latitudes. That's, that's less than the, the driest desert on Earth, but it's still <laughs> something. Frankly. Yeah. If we could find a way of... Of uh, extracting it, the HO is hydroxyl. That's the name of the uh, hydroxyl. Hydroxyl, okay. And then and molecular water were the were the two things that they were mapping. So interesting. So there's a lot of lot of lot up there, a lot of water up there, but um, sort of just spread throughout the, the surface soil on the moon. Water, water everywhere. Not a drop to drink. Yeah, basically. All of that means that in a recent paper, computer scientists argue that the soon-to-be-developed quantum computers will completely destroy all existing internet security. That is science, because they did argue that. And the existing is the key word there. They may use that to also develop new security measures, but the bottom line is that all existing security will be instantly obsolete the moment somebody has a quantum computer, like a fully functional quantum computer. Uh, have, Have any of you heard of the the specific algorithm that they would use to to break codes, all of the existing codes? Probably. I hope it's called the Turing uh, algorithm. That would be cool. Um, it's called Shor's algorithm. Uh, Shor's. Sure it is. <laughs> um, yeah. So that the paper was written by Lang and Bernstein, and they yeah. explained that Shor's algorithm could break all cryptographic techniques uh, essentially, what Shor's algorithm is, it's a way of using a quantum computer in order to figure out, given an integer n, find its prime factors. But if you could do that integer factorization, I guess that's a way of cracking, you know, cryptographic codes. Oh. Totes. Totes. So, <laughs> yeah. So essentially, what they're arguing in the paper is, uh, so it's not, it's, it's quite feasible by, by, by around 2025, we're going to have you know, fully functional quantum computers. By then, we have got to figure out a way to encrypt the internet against those computers. Hell yeah. Because if we don't, we're, we're screwed. The, you know, all security is done. The Equifax yeah. thing will look like a joke by comparison. Exactly. It'll be nothing. Um, so, it's you know, just trying to get ahead of this. Saying this is something we need to be working on now. Yeah. You know, yeah. not, not, not 10 years from now when, when, you know, hackers have access to quantum computers. Yeah. And Shor's algorithm. Oh boy. Yeah. We're screwed. So <laughs> And a- AI gets a hold of a quantum computer, it's like forget it. Yeah, the AI will be a quantum computer. Are you kidding me? Oh my gosh, it's worse than I thought. But oh, here's the thing. I don't know about that. If with huh? uh, I know, I'm just kidding. With a quantum <laughs> oh, computer I mean, goodness. with a quantum computer and quantum algorithms, you can develop a program that will tell you where squirrels have all their nuts. <laughs> <laughs> oh that that's handy. Yeah. Touche. Way to bring it together. Yeah. On the moon. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Right now, squirrels just... They're... On the moon, right back. <laughs> yeah. Squirrels will be hiding their nuts on the moon. That's right. Evenly distributed. Evenly distributed. <laughs> <laughs> 
That is, I mean, how adorable is it that squirrels like have their different types of nuts cached in different locations? <laughs> I love it. Um, all right, Evan, give us a quote. The three great essentials to achieve anything worthwhile are first, hard work, second, stick to itiveness, third, <laughs> common sense. And that was said by Thomas Alva Edison. And I don't think mm-hmm. I need to explain who Thomas Edison was. Now, the reason I, I chose this particular quote, I was looking for quotes which talked about hard work, basically. Mm-hmm. And it kind of ties into what we were talking with uh, Massimo about earlier. Skepticism requires work, understanding it, constant. Yeah. Hard, and it is hard work, but it's rewarding hard work. And it is sort of never-ending, hence stick And then the third part of that being common sense – well, that was the name, my pseudonym for my rap artist when I wrapped my skeptical puzzle many, many years ago. So that's why I like that <laughs> one. Sense. So there you have it. He left out number four, Ooh. which is stealing ideas from other people. Yeah, that somehow didn't make it into the, uh, into nice. the quote. But uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he left that out. <laughs> yeah. A clever edit. <laughs> I guess he gets to write his own reviews. I suppose so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What does Tesla well, have to say about that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's actually not so much Tesla as uh, oh, uh, adding to, um, the Swan. The Swan, the British guy he stole the light bulb from. Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, the bastard. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for joining me this week. You're welcome. Hey, quick reminder. I know Ooh. this is last minute, but we the last couple of weeks we said, so tomorrow as this show comes out, so Sunday, September 17th, 12 noon, Eastern Time live Facebook streaming event will be joined by George Hrob. It's going to be a lot of fun. We have some fun content prepared for you. So go to our the SGU Facebook page, September 17th on, at 12 noon. And I will see you guys all there except yep. for Kara. She's Aww. not going to be able to make that one event. Yep. George will be taking your place. And I'll see the rest of you. I'll see all of you next week. And until next week. This is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.